Welcome to our newest episode. Tim and I are excited to share with you our conversation with Dr. Sean Cleary, Secretary of the AHPBA. Dr. Cleary is a hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and has a focus on minimally invasive hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery. Dr. Cleary trained in surgery at the University of Toronto and completed a fellowship in hepatobiliary oncology and transplantation surgery at the Toronto General Hospital, where he began his career on staff. Dr. Cleary is a familiar face at the HPBA as a member of the leadership of the Society as Secretary. In our conversation, we focused on Dr. Cleary's expertise in minimally invasive HPV surgery, hepatocellular carcinoma, and the move from Canadian to American systems of healthcare and how this impacts the care of patients with HPV diseases. We certainly hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Welcome everybody to the HPBA podcast and we are absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Sean Cleary. Dr. Cleary is a, a HPV surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, having moved there from um, Toronto. So we have a lot to talk about today. Um, so welcome Dr. Cleary. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having me. It's a real, uh, real honor. I've been looking forward to it for quite a while. Yeah, we're excited. So, uh, you know, we'll start by just kind of asking you how you got where you are. Uh, if you talk a little bit about your background, your training and things like that, I think the audience would be interested to hear. Yeah, sure. So um, going way back. So I, I was, uh, I'm Canadian. I was born in Toronto. Uh, I moved around a lot as a kid. My father worked for Procter & Gamble. And so I, we kind of moved around Europe from the age that I was about uh, six till I was um, about 17. I did a couple of years of high school in Canada. I came back to Canada for university and did med school there. And then I went to the University of Toronto for surgical residency. One of the big people to inspire me there was uh, Steve Gallinger and Bryce Taylor, who were both HPV surgeons there. I did my residency there and then really, you know, I had no idea where I was going in surgery. I wasn't sure whether I'd be a colorectal surgeon or a surgical oncologist. I kept telling my program director I was up, interested in upper GI oncology surgery and he kind of would look at me and say, yeah, okay, how about you try and define that a little bit better? And clearly we had an amazing HPB fellowship there where uh, I knew people like Alice Way and Caroline Moulton, and they just kind of inspired me. And I was lucky enough to kind of uh, get inspired by that group and then ended up staying there for fellowship, not because I was uh, resistant to moving, but really uh, it was a phenomenal training and uh, to work under Steve Ballinger, Paul Gregg, David Grant, Bryce Taylor, uh, Mark Cottrell, uh, Ian McGilvery and Alice Way was fantastic. And then on top of that, I ended up uh, being able to then stay on staff there, which was really uh, a dream job. It was fantastic. Um, I was there for about 10 years, just a little bit over 10 years, and then made the move to, to Mayo Clinic in Rochester uh, four and a half years ago. So... Um... Being a fellow Canadian as well, I completely uh, love the story um, and have a lot of uh, connections to that as well. My, my dad was a resident at the University of Toronto as well, I think class of 85, and I think was actually his one of his heroes that I grew up hearing about was Dr. Paul Gregg as well, um, because uh, of both his surgical prowess and his uh, musical abilities. 
but uh, yeah, absolutely awesome story. So what was your practice like in Toronto for the first 10 years there and, and practicing in the Canadian system? And how did that, how did that change when you came to Mayo? Or did your practice change a little bit? Um, have you focused more now, when you, now that you've moved? And then maybe we could talk about just some differences in two very large um, and, and powerhouse HPB academic centers in different countries. Yeah, sure. Great question. So I, I got to say, I was extremely fortunate. You know, I was able to join a very high functioning, highly active and highly academic HPB group. So, you know, I know a lot of people have to build up their HPB practice and their HPB referrals. I was just blessed that I was able to drop into a situation where really uh, I did the uh, 80 to 90% of my practice was HPB and HPB oncology. Um, I did, you know, some upper GI oncology, so I still continue to do gastric cancer and some sarcoma work, uh, but I was able to uh, really uh, practice a broad base of not only benign, but malignant HPB uh, and both pancreas and liver surgery, so I didn't have any constraints at the cystic duct in terms of going up or down. Uh, and so I was really, you know, fortunate in that way. And you drop into a mature practice like that. I, I really was, I couldn't have been luckier. And I was surrounded by great colleagues. So I had lots of support. In Toronto, we had this great environment where people were always walking in and out of each other's operating rooms, you know, second opinions and third opinions and fourth opinions were flying around. So it was really a fantastic place. And I guess one of the things when I made a transition to Mayo, one of the things is I didn't really want to give that up. Uh, so I wanted to look for a very similar practice with a, with a broad range of, of uh, ca uh, capacity and, and, and diseases. So I would say that really my practice hasn't changed a great deal in terms of the diseases and the operations that I do. Uh, just because of the, the nature of things, I do a little bit more sarcoma work here. Um, but really, um, the, the types of diseases and the types of operations I, I deal with are extremely similar. And so that was important to me just in terms of considering other options, really uh, not wanting to cut out large portions of my practice, but also not having to stretch myself into an area where I wasn't particularly comfortable. And that, you know, that can be, you know, when you're considering a new uh, situation, you know, oh yeah, you know, I'll, I'll grow into that area or develop in that area, which is a, an undertaking unless you've got appropriate, you know, kind of mentorship to kind of take on something, you know, mid-career. But no, I was able to replicate a very similar practice and again, blessed by great colleagues at both sites that are extremely supportive. So can you uh, talk a little bit about your motivation to move mid-career kind of you know, what drove you? How hard did you look? Was it that the job was perfect or were you looking for an opportunity to kind of grow into a different position or how did that decision all come about? Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it because I think it was a lot of all, all of the above. So I was not looking for uh, a new position. I wasn't kind of sending my CV out to various places. I wasn't looking on job boards or, you know, that sort of thing. And so really, I was fortunate, I've been fortunate a couple of times to have some people that I really respect reach out to me and see if I was interested. So there was, you know, other opportunities along the way. But really, I think that uh, 
you know, in conversations with my family, we weren't really looking to move. We weren't really uh, planning on it or, you know, I didn't have a career path that involved a move. But, you know, uh, I really got, uh, you know, a couple of great opportunities to look at. And then you start, you know, to think and, and a little bit is, you know, I think that as you kind of reach that 10 year part, part mark of your career, um, there's an opportunity, you know, to challenge yourself. You're always looking for new challenges. And, uh, and this was really an opportunity to grow both personally and professionally. It was an opportunity to challenge myself. I, I think to a certain extent, the fact that I was working in a place where I had trained may have contributed to that a little bit because, you know, I, I hadn't really gone somewhere else after graduating medical school to kind of have to prove myself or challenge myself. And so that was really it. And, and again, the ability to move to a, uh, a place that really I wasn't making a great deal of sacrifices in, from professionally in terms of my practice, but just an opportunity to sort of set in new challenges was really invigorating uh, for me. So it's, it, you know, I think as you talk about these things and, and you sort of talk about them with your family and you have that sort of internal dialogue with yourself as to whether a move is something you consider, you always, someone helped me and say, what are the push and what are the pull factors? What's pulling you to the new location? What's pushing you away from your current situation? And I had very few push factors, uh, but I had some pull factors. And so um, it was a, it was a, it was a good challenge for me. And it was, it was interesting. It opened up just some, some other doors, uh, that I was able to explore, but, uh, I left behind a great situation. I left behind a great set of colleagues and, uh, and I have a similar great set of colleagues here and a great set of challenges. So it really is just maybe a, a bit of personal growth. It wasn't really looking to climb anything or to, to, to pursue anything specific that I couldn't in Toronto, but it was just a matter of personal growth and professional growth. Well, just wanted to point out that I'm pretty sure you moved to the most Canadian poor part of the United States anyways, <laughs> so I don't know if it truly counts. But um, do, Well, do my kids can still play hockey. That was also <laughs> yeah, another exactly. important consideration, that hockey, uh, <laughs> the ability to play hockey and keep playing hockey was very, was part of the decision. Well, we moved to the States and that was actually the number one reason for my family where we chose, where we chose was actually the hockey program. So um, I can also sympathize with that. Do you mind just talking a little bit about the differences at all, if there are any, um, between HPV practices in Canada and how um, you approach things there, um, just for our listeners to learn um, compared to here in the United States? Because I, I, you know, I've heard Dr. Wei talk a few times and it's, it, it does seem similar. Um, that'd be interesting, I think. So, yeah, great question because, uh, I've, uh, it's been interesting to sit kind of, you know, in, uh, and listen to, uh, people talk about non-Canadians talk about the Canadian healthcare system. And to a certain extent, it might depend on what news channel you're tuned into. Uh, but, um, you know, um, I would say that there are a lot there are a lot of misperceptions of the Canadian healthcare system uh, outside of Canada. The Canadian healthcare system is extremely strong. There's a lot of focus on, you know, wait times and and those sort of things. But I gotta say that my my personal wait times for surgery 
here in the United States and, and Canada were, are about the same. Um, the system runs is focused very highly on efficiency and they have a very strong uh, focus on evidence-based medicine. So if you want to introduce a new technology or you want to you know, start something new or have a new drug, you have to prove that there's evidence. And I think that's very valuable and very, very um, helpful. There's efficiency gained because there's one insurance company and that's the government. And uh, so I spent no time dealing with peer-to-peer uh, -peer calls or uh, authorization calls or those sort of things. And the other thing that I think the system does because the, the single insurance company is the government, they're able to be a little bit more directive of care. And I think this is where kind of like Alice Way has done a lot of research is that if for HPV care in Canada, but particularly in the province where I was, Ontario, HPV surgical care is limited to seven high volume hospitals in the province. It might be nine now, but there are only specific hospitals in the province where HPV surgery can be done. Um, and it really came down to the fact that the, the insurance company or the government decided that they're only going to pay for that surgery in one of those accredited centers that had to be staffed by fellowship trained HPV surgeons with certain criteria like closed ICUs, 24-hour IR and interventional GI. Like they had to have not just the surgeon, but the, the whole sort of the service line. Here in the US, while we have extremely high volume centers that, that, that uh, we're fortunate enough to participate in, you know, you look at the NISQIP or uh, NCDB data and a, and a lot of HPV surgery is done at, at uh, medium and low volume hospitals. And that's, um, and that's some of the challenge. The challenge is particularly that there's some excellent care being delivered at some of those medium and low volume centers. And there are places, low medium volume centers that are struggling with their outcomes. And so that's a little bit of the, the, uh, the difference in terms of the, um, the, the system. So I, we, you know, we see second opinions or referrals here from smaller hospitals that just kind of, it was different for me because I wouldn't have expected those people to sort of undertake those type of procedures at a smaller, smaller place. But um, that's a, a certainly a, an interesting dynamic and challenge for the, for the system. Very interesting. So maybe we could use that as a segue to talk about approach to your approach and your practice to patients with HPV malignancies. Maybe we could focus a little bit more on, on, on liver, because I know that that's something you're particularly involved in. Um, how about um, the expansion of MIS HPV surgery in Canada versus here in the United States and what tools are, were in your toolbox, so to speak? And, and is that, is, was there any difference between that and, and the move at all? No, I don't, I don't think so. Not necessarily. I think there wasn't any difference in the move at all. You know, one of the interesting things about MIS liver surgery is I, that was just kind of coming to the fore when I was finishing fellowship. So I went to the AHPVA meeting that was combined with SAGES in Hollywood, Florida. And I, I hate to look up what year that exactly was, but I went there and I saw, you know, Joel Buell and Nick O'Rourke and Joe Espad and those guys talking about minimally invasive liver surgery. And I was just finishing my fellowship and I had done an entirely 100% open fellowship. So I came back, I was at that meeting and I remember talking to my mentors like Paul Gregg and 
Steve Gallinger and those guys and say, hey, you know, I think there's something to this, this minimally invasive liver surgery. What do you guys think? <laughs> I can paraphrase their response was kind of like, okay, that's nice, Sean. Good luck with that. And uh, it really was kind of those early, early days. So um, myself, Alice Way and Caroline Moulton all kind of uh, graduated very close together. And we kind of took that on as something we wanted to learn. And to be honest with you, there was not very little, almost nothing available at that time. So I kind of, we kind of went to weekend courses. We went down to one in Houston, or I went to one in Houston, I remember. And um, then I think we even flew to Australia to see Nick O'Rourke uh, there. And really, but then had to sort of slowly learn how to do it. And well, I almost think that we were self-taught almost because you know, learned to sort of do a bit of liver surgery on pigs on a weekend. And then a couple months later, after a couple more pigs uh, have kind of exsanguinated, you're, you, you sort of, um, you know, have to try and figure out what, how to operate on humans. And so that was something where we took it very seriously and we took a very kind of considerate and thoughtful approach to how we were going to develop this program really put a lot rather than just kind of picking cases and doing them. We really sort of talked about it and thought about it a lot. And so now I think that the hope is that one is people are getting a lot more experience in their training and there are sort of a little bit, there's a little bit more sophistication to some of the other educational opportunities. And, uh, and so that was just something again, that sort of was coming out as, as we were, as I was finishing training. And then the, the other component was really sort of HCC and that, you know, I was trying to join a big group and everybody was kind of nationally and internationally famous for a variety of things. And, and I kind of, you know, said, Hey, like, we don't really talk much about HCC. Maybe I'll get interested in HCC. And I talked to our sort of main sort of HCC guru, who's a hepatologist named Morris Sherman. And he kind of said, why would any resection surgeon be interested in HCC? Because at that point in time, kind of resection was fading as part of it. They thought transplant was going to cure all of it and, or we're going to be able, able to ablate everything. And, uh, and then slowly, you know, we were able to demonstrate with thoughtfulness and good outcomes that, you know, surgery and resective surgery still had a role in HCC. And that was kind of where I sort of uh, launched on. And the fact that, you know, in Toronto, we had a lot of patients with HCC and cirrhosis. The fact that the cirrhotics did so much better with minimally invasive surgery really helped me kind of gain a toehold in, in that area and really kind of allowed my sort of practice to grow and, and, uh, and also sort of was a whole area of inquiry, both from a clinical research perspective, as well as a basic science research. Yeah, just to, before we dive into HCC too much to put a bow on the minimally invasive thing, uh, where, what are your thoughts? What's your practice right now? M, uh, laparoscopic versus robot. You can't come on our podcast without talking about the robot. That's the rule. Uh, so <laughs> just curious kind of where you sit on that and what you think yeah. the next five, 10 years are going to look like. Sure. So, you know, you asked about differences between Canada and the United States. Um, I, I think access to the robot is different. Um, I think at one point, like Minnesota might have more robots than the entire country of Canada, um, you know, and, and it's just really a, a cost perspective and really you got to call a space spade that times the value proposition and the evidence supporting robotic surgery isn't always there, but um, 
robotic surgery certainly has a role. It's certainly, I think, going to help us evolve in minimally invasive because, again, um, you know, uh, one of the things I did when I first got here was to see Mike Kendrick do a lap Whipple, and he just happened to do a lap Whipple with SMV resection and reconstruction and SMA reconstruction. And I was like, okay, well, that's great. What do the rest of us mortals do? And uh, and so, you know, the robot, I think, uh, can help us with some of those barriers in and complex MIS surgery. Mm -hmm. Do I think we need the robot for gallbladders and do we need it for hernias? not totally sure, but um, I'm sure intuitive will uh, listen to the podcast and, 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 and not be happy. But um, <laughs> so I, I would say right now, you know, I, I, so about, I do about 30, about 30%, actually, it was about my last number last year, 30% of my surgery is minimally invasive, whether that's pancreas or uh, liver. And that's been a number percentage that I've been kind of at for the last couple of years. And uh, um, the question for me now is, you, you know, as you always continue to challenge yourself is how do I get that to 35 or 40? Um, listen, I talked to lots of people. I talked to Peter Kingham. I talked to Alice. I talked to lots of people around. John Martini's a, a good friend. And, and uh, I definitely see the value of robotic surgery in uh, pancreas surgery, particularly around pancreatic duodenectomy. Uh, I still haven't quite bought in on liver, uh, just because I, I, again, it's, it's hard to say. I think some of our, I, I'm, I really use some of our more, you know, advanced sort of liver instruments like Waterjet or CUSA, uh, to try and do, you know, come through the liver parenchyma. I'm not quite a, an energy only type of person. And I've just, I just kind of haven't, uh, fully gotten comfortable with the robotic platform doing large liver resections. I do smaller liver resections, particularly when combined with our colorectal people when, cause the robots docked, uh, but I'm still working on that and trying to try to figure out and I need to spend, you know, more time working on it. But um, I, I, think, I mean, I think a lot of our, a lot of when we talked about, when we talked about this with a number of people, it comes back to that parenchymal transection question. Like, how do you really do that with the robot? And nobody, nobody seems to have answered that question yet. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Jason Hawksworth, who's in at Georgetown, does this really nice CUSA and then the robot technique yeah. where he's really kind of replicating almost like the two surgeon open technique, uh, but with the robot and the lap CUSA, which really I think is appealing, but you have to have somebody at the bedside that can run that. So it really does become kind of a two surgeon job. So, but I, I think that that's really the, question out there for robotic liver surgery is how are we going to replicate that with with the robot and i don't see intuitive coming out with a robotic kusa anytime soon that's for sure no and in fact with the kusa like we're not we can't even get uh, the company to make the laparoscopic handpiece compatible with their new generator so it's a real we're having a bit of a struggle and i think that if you want you know look at some of the data the amount of liver surgery being done minimally invasively while it takes up a lot of room at meetings, you know, we're still in the, you know, low 10%, you know, range. And so uh, until that sort of comes up a little higher, I think it's going to be difficult to get these companies to get really interested in it because it is kind of just an, I mean, HPB is already a niche area of the surgical market. 
but then minimally invasive HPV is even niche of, you know, the niche of the niche, or I don't know what the right yeah. term is, but super pretty, niche, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty small market. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I try to perform every case I can minimally invasively and I use the robot almost exclusively, but I will fully admit that I think that the advent of robotic HPV surgery primarily for the liver has definitely benefited from the renaissance in parenchymal sparing hepatectomy. And therefore it's kind of a target rich environment where the CUSA probably isn't, isn't going to have as much of an impact when you're performing three minimally invasive partial hepatectomies compared to doing a red hepatectomy and you really need CUSA um, to define the plane of the middle hepatic vein, for example. So I agree that the jury's still out. What are like, so that maybe it, that's a good way to segue just a little bit more into um, your efforts with MIS surgery and um, gathering data on this. I know that you run a registry for MIS. Um, hope and and how is that structured? How can maybe some of our listeners contribute if they want to, and maybe try to get to the root of some of these these questions that we're answering? Because clearly, if we're all doing it differently, that's the perfect time to put it into one big study and look at what the best way is. 100%. Thanks so much for that. So absolutely. I think this this idea of starting a, a North American registry started at the ILLS meeting in Paris when people like Adnan Alsadi and I were sitting in the audience watching the Italians and the British and the um, uh, Asians present these really large studies of minimally invasive liver and pancreas surgery and able to ask really good questions because they just had you know, the volume of cases to ask, you know, good hypotheses. You need a, a, you know, sort of a baseline number of cases to have adequate power to look at better questions. And there was not very little coming out of North America at those meetings, mostly because we were all kind of doing our single center thing. And in reality, very few centers have enough volume to on their own, you know, ask really good questions with their data. So yeah, we all sort of work together and it's a very sort of uh, what the term is open concept or open invitation initiative to start really a minimally invasive surgical registry for the Americas. So Canada, the United States, Central and South America for people to put in not just their retrospective cases but their prospective cases and it's, you know, we tried to make it as easy as it is. So we did a web-based format. We wanted to collect enough variables to kind of, you know, get a good amount of information in, but not so that you had to sit down for hours and enter data. So we aim to have the ability to enter a case in less than 20 minutes and then started to just kind of publicize it and, and, and let people know about it. So I think it right now we have about uh, nine centers, and we have about three or four that are coming online. We have almost 1,700 cases in the registry already. And I think that as from the Americas, we're able to, you know, make some unique contributions out of this registry. You know, we've all brought one up already, and that's robotic surgery. So, uh, yes, we have some centers that are pure MIS shops. Uh, L, sorry, pure laparoscopic shops, and we have some people that are pure robotics, and then we have some centers that are a mixture of the two. And I think that you know the Americas will be able to contribute 
you know, important information on the outcomes of robotic liver surgery and pancreas surgery combined or in comparison to laparoscopic. There's other areas where I think we're going to be able to make unique contributions just because of our patient population. So for instance, HCC on the background of fatty liver disease is a, it's a global phenomenon, but I think we're leading it, that area in the Americas. And so, you know, things like the oncologic outcomes of minimally invasive surgery and in, in fatty liver associated HCC is going to, you know, there's some unique opportunities. I don't want to give away all of my hypotheses, but you know, those are things that I think we're going to be able to contribute to. So it really is kind of a, an open invitation type of uh, activity. Uh, we have big centers, small centers, people have been doing it for years. People who just finished fellowship uh, and the range of cases in the registry is anywhere from kind of 300 to five. So, you know, it really is a, an opportunity for people hopefully to contribute. And, and again, it's everyone kind of owns their data. So it's not that they're signing over their life and their data away. Uh, but I think we've got a good group and I think we've got a good sort of structure around it to hopefully start to make some, some impact. And, you know, we, I think we've got four abstracts at the IHPBA meeting and four at SAGES. I think we split them 50-50 between the two meetings. So hopefully we're going to start to see some, some nice data coming out of it. And again, it's it's all thanks to all of the contributors. That's great. Um, can we drop something in the show notes that uh, will link people to that if they want, if they're interested in joining? 100%, yep. Great, yep. I'll make sure that becomes available. Um, so, you know, we wanted to pivot a little bit and talk specifically about hepatocellular carcinoma, which is obviously an area of your expertise. So, you know, I think it's interesting as a, as you said, as a resectional surgeon at a place that does transplant, can you talk a little bit about how these cases kind of get to you, how they get divvied up? You know, are you, are you at tumor board arguing with the transplant doctors about who should go, things like that, or kind of how does that work at Mayo? Yeah, sure. So I, I think that um, the only sort of unique aspect of Mayo is that our, our transplant surgeons uh, do not uh, participate in resections. So it's kind of where we've got sort of um, a separation of the two groups uh, in terms of the structure, but not in terms of our thought. We collaborate really closely with them. And I think the reality is that we have a very good, you know, collaboration on HCC and hyalurcholangiocarcinoma carcinoma and a, and a variety of things. And so that's always good to have that underlying kind of trust. There certainly is, you know, um, uh, differences in the in the utilization of transplantation, you know, in the United States for HCC compared to Canada, um, and is just the way in which the organ sharing systems are organized. But I think that you know our group has a very you know good understanding and 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 good kind of approach to it all. That you know if an HCC is resectable, it should be resected. If it's not resectable, then we it should be considered for transplantation. And the reality is there's there's a lot of HCC. And, and if you look at sort of the national databases, it's relatively poorly managed across the country. Um, but you know, there's more than enough, you know, for for everybody. And so I think it's just being able to pick who's gonna do well from resection and who's not gonna do well from resection. And who is going to do you know well from transplantation? And so, you know, we 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 and I use this in kind of every HCC talk. We think that 
there's this pitch battle around, you know, 90% of the HPCC between, uh, between resection and transplant. But in reality, it's less than 15% of HCC cases are actually eligible for both modalities. So, you know, the average age of, H, of diagnosis of HCC is somewhere between 72 and 75, which automatically, you know, limits, you know, eliminates transplantation from over half the cases based on age alone. Then you look at the various tumor criteria, UCSF or Milan and uh, resectability. And so I think that there are, you know, areas where I think we we're better understanding now what cases are better approached with resection and what cases are better approached with transplantation. So just in that vein then, Dr. Cleary, do you mind just kind of walking us through maybe your algorithm that you just kind of how Dr. Cleary approaches a patient with hepatocellular carcinoma and considering for resection? And when um, are you are you hard and fast referring somebody for transplantation or maybe the contrary, hard and fast considering somebody for a resection, just generally? Yeah, sure. No problem at all. So there's always, I was kind of say there's two components. There's assessing the tumor and then there's assessing the underlying liver disease in the patient. So um, for, you know, the clearly resectable patient, uh, I think from a tumor perspective, uh, that really mostly focuses on unifocal disease. So solitary tumor, we can talk about resection of multifocal disease, but, uh, but that's kind of, that's um, a little more nuanced, but I think in terms of the, the patient with a solitary tumor with well-preserved liver function and a absence of severe portal hypertension. Um, you can define that, you know, well-preserved liver function by child's A. I think you have to be very selective in the child's B7 category, and then, you know, really be wary of the B8 cirrhotic uh, because they can, they can go from a B8 to a, to a C, C10, you know, very quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, that's kind of the, I think the person where you want that would be, you know, relatively well resected. I think there are also some subtle signs that you pick up, you know, again, in terms of the, the, the assessment of patients. So, you know, you can look at their parenchyma on the scan, look for subtle signs of more advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. And that could be things like right lobe atrophy and left lobe hypertrophy, caudate lobe hypertrophy, Recanalized umbilical veins, you know, moderate splenomegaly. Again, that's that's a little bit soft. Looking for intra-abdominal varices and particularly abdominal wall collaterals. Um, and so that's kind of the you know around the assessment of the patient. So I tend to use a, a platelet cutoff of about a hundred thousand. Uh, once you get into the nineties or eighties, I might use uh, hepatic venous pressure gradients to try and stratify those patients with moderately severe portal hypertension. And then, you know, coming full circle on the conversation, one of the components that comes into the decision is, can I do this operation, this resection minimally invasively, or do I have to do it open? Because again, those cirrhotics do so much better with minimally invasive surgery that there are definitely a, a number of times where I have said, listen, I, I can take that tumor out and I think it's a good, good case for resection only because I can do it laparoscopically. Whereas if I had to do that operation on that patient open, I would not do that operation. So 
I think that there's another, that's an additional sort of bit of nuance there. Um, who's ideally uh, suited for transplantation? Well, clearly the patients with more advanced liver disease and portal hypertension. Those patients, uh, the competing risks are both with their liver disease and the cancer. They're, they're going to do better with, with transplantation. And, uh, and then, you know, obviously, I think that where we get into these debates are the patients with multifocal disease. And I would say that, you know, in all, in all honesty, I think that I lean towards transplantation and multifocal disease. I think the risk of intrahepatic recurrence is, uh, is quite high. And I think in that population, I think you could make an argument that the outcomes for transplantation are better. Uh, than resection and multifocal disease. Just uh, on the question of gradients, do you have a hard number that you're like, I'm not, like let's say they're not a transplant candidate, uh, platelet counts 100, you get portal, you know, you get a gradient. Where's your cutoff there for not operating? I think you look at various numbers in the literature, 10, 12. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's, it's, I don't know that I have a hard number, okay. but again, it depends a little bit on you know, do they need a wedge or do they need a, a, a segment or do they need a lobe? Okay. I, I think it's all sort of, um, I don't know that I have a hard cutoff or a hard no. It's not like we used to have ICG in Toronto and there, the, you know, that, that was kind of a system that had been relatively well validated in Asia in terms of this person can tolerate a lobe and this person can tolerate a segment and this person can tolerate less than a segment. I don't know that we have that data for you know, any of those other modalities, but uh, ICG, you know, was kind of fell off. It was never very popular in North America. It was really, you know, widely popularized in Asia. And, uh, and then we had, you know, actually problems getting ICG because before things like the, the, the perfusion assessments and the, you know, people like intuitive and, and, um, and uh, Stortz getting interested in it, uh, it, it didn't have a huge role, but now, now I wonder whether just because it's more available, whether that ICG clearance will come back. Interesting. So, um, kind of along those lines to talk a little bit more about patients with high risk tumors, biologically, um, resection versus transplantation and, and the like, how are you seeing the use of um, immunotherapy and systemic therapies more and more in your practice, or at least in your tumor boards. Do you consider using that in the neoadjuvant setting, for example, for patients who are high risk biologic uh, tumors? Um, and then what's the discussion about that for patients who you're considering for potential resection versus transplantation? I know that was a really hot topic from all the videos that I watched in, in the sessions I attended at HPBA, there were some very serious um, opinions on um, the use of what seems to be um, a really promising uh, option for patients that didn't have great options before. Yeah, great question. So, I, you know, it's great that no one in our group has any strong opinions, right? And so certainly that discussion brought out some real- I didn't mean that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that brought out some real, uh, real strong feelings because I think that nothing's more demoralizing than watching uh, a patient kind of lose their organ and then subsequently deteriorate significantly because of treatment-related toxicity, which was 
you know, what I think people are describing and there's isolated occurrences. And I think it makes people very nervous. I think the fact that transplant outcomes are very closely tracked, you know, makes people very, take these things very, very seriously. One of the interesting things was, I think that the Sinai group, Parisia Tabritzian presented some of the data of patients where they've been successful in using immunotherapy prior to transplantation. And I don't know, uh, you know, that there was a lot of use afterwards, but, you know, that's, that's certainly, you know, an interesting fork in the road that as immunotherapy, uh, you know, increases its role in HCC, you know, is the transplant path and an immunotherapy free zone. And so do I use it in the neoadjuvant setting? No, not at this time. I don't think we have the data to support that. I've also not been, you know, while I think it's a significant improvement over uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy, I don't think that we're quite seeing the response rates that we would want to see to kind of bring it into the neoadjuvant setting at this point in time. I think we'll see more mature data as it come out, comes out. And we certainly have a few trials, so uh, ongoing at the use of immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting. So I think if we saw some you know, positive signals of it use in the adjuvant setting, it might make sense to use it in the neoadjuvant setting. But I, I, I'm certainly not using it at this point in time, but I'm following the literature very closely on that. And I think that we'll have a couple studies come you know, with data in the adjuvant setting, probably come out in the next two to three years. And, uh, and that'll be, you know, really challenging, but certainly, you know, it's great for HCC patients overall, because really the incremental benefit of tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy as serafinib was pretty modest, despite the fact that it was, you know, well-validated in two randomized trials. Uh, certainly levatinib did, uh, you know, has, has kind of done that with a better side effect uh, profile but really not the kind of response rates or the, the difference in PFS that we would want to see uh, to bring it into the neoadjuvant. Like using the you know, uh, pancreas analogy, we didn't see a lot of enthusiasm for neoadjuvant single-agent gemcitabine or single-agent 5-FU in pancreas cancer just because you didn't see the response rates. But when you got to regimens like fulferinox and gemcitabine abraxane, and you saw, started to see those response rates, you know, there, then that sort of created a little bit more of the enthusiasm. So yet to be determined. And, you know, the always question is, well, what about, you know, other modalities of pre-surgical treatment to try and stratify those patients? So there's been really small reports out of Asia around uh, taste prior to resection. Um, there's some data, not a lot of data about radiation pre and post resection. There's even some data about taste post resection. And then of course the, the Y90 uh, experience, uh, which is, is still sort of evolving, but you know, a, a major component in, in HCC in North America. Yeah, and you're in your hands, are you doing, you know, trying to think of a good example, but you know, like a borderline tumor, are you doing anything in the neoadjuvant setting? Is there a role for that in your practice right now or not really? Not from a chemotherapy perspective. Again, yeah. I just don't know that we're seeing that and we have the data to back up that kind of approach. Yeah. I think there is some, you know, interest about using, 
you know, a, um, other local techniques to mm -hmm. try and, uh, you know, differentiate disease biology or, you know, improve patient selection and whether you use TACE or Y90 or, um, you know, radiotherapy. The only time I've really sort of uh, used radiotherapy kind of somewhat regularly is in patients with macrovascular tumor thrombus. So I had a great collaboration with Laura Dawson in Toronto and here with guys like Chris Hallmeyer and John Ashman around the use of proton beam or SBRT in treating tumors with macrovascular tumor thrombus because we've seen some really nice responses and there's even a couple resections that I've done with quote no viable tumor afterwards and seeing a patient you know with um, you know P2 you know portal vein tumor thrombus or you know V2 V3 kind of tumor you know uh, hepatic vein thrombus so those have been the cases where I've used it on uh, and again. Just not enough numbers to really generate any meaningful data out of, but maybe maybe some point in my career I'll be I have enough cases to kind of write that up. Gotcha. Well, I think we've used about an hour of your time, uh, so uh, we really appreciate you talking with us. And you know, obviously, anything else you want to plug or any other uh, message for the audience, we're happy to put out there. No, I think it's it's great. I mean, I've, it's great to have these kind of forums, and I hope this has been you know helpful to. To yeah. somebody and and I think the it's just a matter of expanding our communication amongst each other in terms of uh, our craft and our field and so th these are always great discussions and so uh, happy to talk anytime whether it's to you guys or anybody and and certainly if anyone has any questions please don't hesitate to reach out maybe you can add my email address to to something but sure. no it's been it's been you know, it's always you know, we're all so passionate and love what we do. I say we're, you know, the luckiest people in the world and just the opportunity to talk about it is, uh, is just such a thrill. So thank you very much for having me on. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure and a real honor. Yeah, we, we certainly, we enjoy all these episodes for sure, but this has been great. And we'll, really, uh, thank you. Um, really appreciate your time and expertise on the podcast for sure. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks again.